Okay. Show me. Sometimes that is better. Welcome to the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast. Be sure you never, ever scream. A podcast where we will explore the dark corners of our world, the weird, the creepy, and the strange. There are no accidents, no coincidences. I am your host, Eric Carrier. The Boogeyman is real. And they must be coming night. My co-host is Jessica Carrier. Thank you for joining us for a journey into the unknown. Be one of us. Let's get started with today's show. Hey guys, welcome to the show. This is the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast and I am your host, Eric Carrier. I'm here as always with my wife and my co-host, Jessica. Jess, what do we have in store for our listeners today? Well, today we're going to be talking about the missing 411 phenomenon. We're going to be taking a look at the phenomenon as a whole, and we're also going to be discussing some of the controversies and theories behind what might be going on. We had a great interview on this topic with Vic and Marcus from the Talking with Shadows podcast. If you'd like to check out that show, the link will be in the show notes. If you are a new listener and you are here for the first time, welcome. If you have been around for a while, welcome back. We know that there are a lot of shows out there that are competing for your time, and we appreciate you giving that time to us. If you like what we're doing, please consider supporting the show. If you would like to support the show, here are a few ways you can do that. First, please share and keep sharing the show. This is by far the most important thing you can do to help our show continue to grow. Next, please remember to keep voting for us each month in the Paranormal Top 25. This is sponsored by Paranormality Magazine, and you can vote for us at paranormalitymag.com. We've been maintaining in the top five on that list for the last several months, and we want to thank you all for continuing to vote for us. Yes, it means a lot, and we really appreciate the support we get from each of you. Another way that you can support the show is to check out our merch store or leave a tip or review. And lastly, come hang out with us on social media. We have accounts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and love to hang out and meet you guys there. All of those accounts, our merch store and our tip jar, can be accessed through our website at prairielandparanormalpodcast.com. Jess, is there anything else? Nope. Okay, let's get started with today's show. One of the biggest paranormal topics making its rounds in the last few years is the missing 411 phenomenon. To date, this phenomenon has been represented in 10 books and two movies. We were recently asked to join our friends over at the Talking with Shadows podcast for a discussion on the topic and how it might relate to other paranormal phenomena, such as cryptids or fairies. After looking at all our research for the show, we realized that there is still so much more to share. So we decided to compile all of that into this show where we will look at the phenomenon as a whole. The Missing 411 is the brainchild of David Pilatus. Pilatus is a former police officer who is now an investigator and writer. According to his online biography, Pilatus received undergraduate and graduate degrees from the University of San Francisco, and in 1977 began a 20-year career in law enforcement, transferring in 1980 to the San Jose Police Department, where he worked in the patrol division on the SWAT team, patrol, street crimes unit, and a variety of assignments in the detective division. After leaving the police force, Halitis took his investigative skills into the realm of Bigfoot, where he founded the North American Bigfoot Search and wrote two books on the topic. Following his work on Bigfoot, Halitis' next project was The Missing 411, where he documents unsolved cases of people who have gone missing in the national park system. According to Politis, the idea for the missing 411 came during his Bigfoot research, 
when an off-duty park ranger expressed concern about the questionable nature of some of the missing person cases which occurred in the parks. The ranger asked Politis to research the issue. Politis obliged and asserts that he uncovered multiple pieces of evidence suggesting negligence on the part of the park service. He believes that he has uncovered a mysterious series of worldwide disappearances which he says defies logical and conventional explanations. Politis himself doesn't have a theory on what is causing the disappearances, although he indicates that the field of suspects is narrowing. Politis encourages his readers to go outside of their comfort zone to determine who or what the culprit is. This, of course, leads the field of study wide open and includes speculation into serial killers, Bigfoot, other cryptids, or fairies. Halada's book highlights the fact that the U.S. Park Service does not keep an independent list of people that go missing in their parks. While there is a database for incident and criminal reports, it is not widely or consistently used, and it doesn't interface with other criminal databases. This, of course, makes it difficult for other investigative agencies to access the information, leaving investigations primarily in the hands of the Park Service. Polites asserts that the department is therefore negligent and accountable for the lack of investigation that goes into these cases, which typically consists of just a few days of searching for missing individuals before giving up. As with all topics that delve into the paranormal, there is plenty of controversy surrounding the topic of the missing 411, the primary being that Politis has created a non-phenomena. Kyle Pollich, a data scientist, documented his analysis of Politis's claims in an article entitled Missing 411. He concluded that the allegedly unusual disappearances represented nothing unusual at all and are instead best explained by non-mysterious causes such as falling or sudden health crisis leading to a lone person becoming immobilized off trail, drowning, bear or other animal attack, environmental exposure, or even deliberate disappearance. After analyzing the missing person's data, Pollich concluded that these cases are not outside the frequency that one would expect, or that there's anything unexplainable that he was able to identify. Pollich concluded in his analysis I've exhausted my exploration for anything genuinely unusual. After careful review to me, not a single case stands out, nor do the frequencies involved seem outside of expectations. In August 2021, Brian Dunning released a Skeptoid episode on the examination of the missing 411 claims. In this episode, Dunning states that researchers have pointed out that many aspects of the cases have explanations that are well known, just apparently not to Politis. Quote, Looking at 243 different cases, all of which come from a wide range of decades and scenarios, it becomes very clear that a lot of his claims are incorrect. Though not much can be said in the way of dramatic surnames or wearing red, What's most common is that middle-aged Caucasian men go missing. Out of the 243 cases observed in this instance, 189 were male, 132 were between the ages of 20 and 59, and 220 were Caucasian. Over and over again, these men were allegedly experienced hikers, had some form of pre-existing health issue, or were the age where underlining health issues become problematic or were actively engaging in dangerous trails, the polar opposite of what Politis claims." End quote. Dunning wrote that while Politis asserts a cover-up conspiracy, a review of what data the National Park Service provides actually suggests a more mundane explanation. Quote, the missing 411 non-mystery is a virtual clone of the Bermuda Triangle non-mystery. Politis cites missing persons reports from national parks, and not even he asserts they are at an unexpected rate. And though a few are never found, the majority all have one of the usual explanations. The Bermuda Triangle would be unknown if it were not for efforts of a few imaginative authors who cited actual disappearances 
and then made all sorts of insinuations of mysterious conditions and inexplicable circumstances, cloaking ordinary but tragic events with an air of mystery. Missing persons in national parks would never have received any undue attention had not David Politis done exactly the same thing, taking ordinary but tragic events and making all sorts of insinuations about them to weave an air of undeserved mystery. And that's where I think the missing 411 fictional universe should be left. Some ordinary events made interesting only by one author's layer of false intrigue, end quote. Now, as folklorists, we certainly know that controversy alone neither proves nor disproves the paranormal. We also know that science alone cannot prove nor disprove the paranormal as well, as there are many aspects of the paranormal that science would simply laugh at and completely disregard. A true researcher steps out of his paradigm and looks at all phenomenon with fresh eyes and an open mind, which is what we try to do on this show. Never claiming truth or falsehood, but simply presenting information and letting you make up your own mind. To be considered a missing 411 case, there are several profile points that need to be met. Here is the profile. First, if with others, there is a point where the missing person separates from the group. Next, the most common time to disappear is in the mid to late afternoon. Victims often disappear near granite boulders or rock fields. Victims are found or disappear near water. There tends to be a weather incident around the time the person disappears or when the search starts. Victims often have an obvious or subliminal disability. Canines can't find or lose the victim's scent. Victims are often found in an area that has been previously searched. Victims' clothing or shoes are often removed. If the victim is found, they often have an unknown cause of death, and victims tend to cluster with other known missing person cases in the area. The more profile points a missing person's case hits, the more likely it is to be considered a mysterious disappearance. Let's take a look at a couple of strange cases. Perhaps the weirdest cases are those in which a person has vanished only to reappear later, unable to explain what had happened. Such is the case of two-year-old Keith Parkins, who in 1952 was visiting his grandfather's remote ranch in Ritter, Oregon. The ranch was surrounded by forest, but Keith was allowed to play out in the yard. And on this day, that is exactly what he was doing. At one point, his grandfather looked outside expecting to see the boy playing as he had seen just a few minutes before, but Keith was nowhere to be seen. A massive search was launched, made all the more urgent because there was frigid weather and snow set to hit that evening which Keith would be unlikely to survive. When nightfall came, Keith had still not been found, and it was puzzling that he could have gotten so far so quickly without a trace. The search went on all night, and when morning came, Keith was located alive eight miles from the ranch lying face down on a frozen pond. Keith, a toddler, had transversed miles of rough wilderness. Bizarrely, despite the intense cold, he had taken his jacket off and his clothes were ripped although there were no signs of physical injury. It was a complete mystery how he had managed to survive at all let alone cross the intimidating terrain that by his size and distance should have taken him nearly 20 hours to cover. How could this be? Another strange case occurred on November 15, 2015, when 82-year-old Thomas Messick Sr., an ex-paratrooper, walked into the woods south of Brant Lake in New York State to hunt for deer and was never seen again. Tom lived in the city of Troy in New York State, and was out that Sunday with a group of six friends and family members who were hunting near Lily Pond in an area of state land that is part of the Lake George Wild Forest. The older members of the group, four of them, were watchers who sat on a log or similar comfortable spot. 
whilst the younger hunters used the path around the lake to drive the deer to the watchers. Tom was supposed to stay in one spot as a member of the group walked through the woods to push deer towards him. But when they arrived at the location where he was supposed to be, he was gone without a trace of him or his belongings. He was wearing duck boots, camouflage pants and coat, gloves, and a red and black checked hat that he had worn for many years. He carried a rifle and a walkie-talkie. Tom served in the U.S. Army as a paratrooper and was an experienced hunter and woodsman and taught hunter and survival training for many years. He had a history of heart problems and lost an eye in an accident with an explosive device in his early 20s, so he had poor vision and limited hearing. He had also just gotten over a case of shingles and nearly decided not to go on the annual hunting trip. He was last seen at 10 a.m. when he did not show up at the agreed upon time. His friends called forest rangers and they searched from 4.30 p.m. until it got dark around 7 p.m. At that point, half the group stayed and fired their rifles and honked the car horns to attract Tom to the area. The rest of the men left the scene and reported him missing to family and the authorities. The day after Tom disappeared on November 16th, the search started with 13 trained SAR professionals from the Park Service. It was well organized from the start. The search lasted several weeks and involved more than 300 professionals and volunteers, assisted by dogs, divers, and several helicopters. They found no clues, including no sign of his rifle or walkie-talkie. More than four square miles were searched, with a larger area being searched by air. The weather was poor, with heavy rain, but sniffer dogs were deployed before the worst of the rain arrived. Searchers walked through the woods, no matter how thick they were, including swamps, and checked nearby roads. But there was absolutely nothing. Areas were tied off with string to box off specific areas to allow the detailed search of every grid zone. It was described as a spider's web of string in the forest. Tom's disappearance is yet another of the really strange missing 411 cases. How did Tom just vanish off the face of the planet? Let's take a look at some of the proposed theories surrounding missing 411 cases. The first theory is natural causes. This theory makes complete sense and includes a very long list of natural or normal types of illnesses and accidents that can befall persons in unexpected ways. Let's face it, despite your comfort and experience level, hiking in the woods carries with it a certain level of danger. Falling, anaphylactic emergencies, fractures, heart attacks, poisoning, drowning, animal attacks, and sudden environmental exposures are all real possibilities. Add to this the hubris of hiking or running alone, perceived comfort in the environment, hundreds if not thousands of unmarked caves or mine shafts, and you have the makings of a tragedy. In fact, it's pretty sobering when you see the distribution of missing 411 cases compared to the known 5,000 plus caving systems in the national park system in the United States. The natural theory is clean and it just makes a lot of sense. But even though people may die of natural causes while out in the wilderness, that doesn't necessarily mean that their body or their remains will ever be found. Another theory that makes sense is murder. The tragic Gabby Petito story has sparked some controversy and has gotten a lot of attention in the past few weeks following the discovery of her body in the Grand Teton National Park and the hunt and eventual death of her boyfriend and prime suspect, Brian Laundrie. But is there any truth to the claims that death, particularly homicide, is disproportionately common in national parks? Serious crimes committed in national parks fall under the jurisdiction of the Investigated Service Branch, or ISB. As of 2020, ISB consisted of 33 agents operating out of four field offices with responsibility consisting of 85 million acres of Park Service land, 
in 423 areas spread across the country. According to the ISB, most recent annual report from 2019, the agency investigated 674 cases in 2019, and 59% of those were crimes against persons. The Pacific Field Office alone conducted 13 homicide and manslaughter investigations and 12 questionable method of death investigations in 2019. Just weeks before Petito's case made headlines, a recently married lesbian couple camping near Arches National Park went missing. Their bodies were later found and it was determined that they had been shot to death. They had told friends about a weirdo camping near them, but a suspect is yet to be identified. These two cases are just the latest examples of all too common murders in and around national parks. So what makes so many murderers choose national parks? Well, quite frankly, the vast expanse of national parks makes them prime spots for covering up a crime. So if I wanted to kill you, Eric, I would choose a national park to dump your body, right? Or never going camping, so you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> Alaska's Wrangell-St. Elias National Park and Preserve alone covers 13.2 million acres of mostly untouched wilderness. The Park Service simply cannot monitor over 80% of its lands, which makes up vast wilderness, leaving plenty of spots to kill undetected, dump a body, and plenty of opportunity to murder by accident. Okay, what exactly is murder by accident? Well, if I push you off of a cliff, and then it's determined to be an accident, I've just murdered you by accident. Okay, that makes sense. I'll keep that in mind. Add to this serial killers such as Carrie Stainer and Gary Hilton, who both exclusively murdered within the national park system, and the possibilities get even wilder. Okay, from here on, the theories get pretty strange. One theory is feral or cannibalistic humans. In late January and early February of 2021, videos and theories about feral people in national parks and wilderness areas started exploding on TikTok. It is unclear exactly where it all began. However, on January 25th, a user named Ariel, who goes by The Present Believer, posted a video about a strange experience she had in the Big Bend National Park in Texas. In her video, she claims she was camping with her husband and daughter in Big Bend. Later, on their fifth day, they stayed the night at the lodge in the basin that hung out on the patio. At one point, they heard multiple people screaming off in the distance. Then a woman screamed, We're gonna die! Ariel claimed the blood-curdling screaming went on. Finally, she heard a woman's voice saying, I love you, just know that. She also alleged she heard a child screaming, Mommy! And other voices saying, Help! And call a ranger! Ariel said they immediately called the police and a park ranger, but they found nothing. She explained that they asked about the family the next day, but none of the park employees or park rangers knew what she was talking about. After Ariel's video, other TikTok users started posting their own stories and theories about bizarre happenings in the wilderness. Mal, known as Coincidence Theorist, who lives in Appalachia, explained that local lore suggests feral people have lived there for centuries. After Mel's video circulated, users speculated about the connection between cases in Missing 411 and these so-called feral people. There are no reports or official documentation suggesting that cannibals or feral people live in the national parks, but this theory continues to spread through unsubstantiated claims on platforms like Reddit, YouTube, and TikTok. It's not clear in these stories why feral humans are or need to be cannibalistic, but it certainly adds some flair to the accounts. Cryptids are another possible theory. This of course includes dozens of paranormal creatures that are purported to live in the wilderness. The most likely culprits, in our opinion, would be Sasquatch or large birds such as Thunderbirds which both have documented cases of abduction, such as Albert Ostman and Marlon Lowe. 
If you're not familiar with these stories, here is a quick breakdown. In 1924, Albert Osman, a lumberjack and woodsman, went to Toba Inlet, British Columbia for a vacation. Osman had heard stories of the man-beasts who supposedly roamed these woods but refused to believe them. As Osman lay asleep one evening, a Sasquatch purportedly picked him up and carried him off while he was in his sleeping bag. Osman was carried in a sleeping bag across the country for three hours. Once he was released from the sleeping bag, there was a family of four creatures surrounding him. The captors, two adults, and two children held Albert captive for six days. Osman reported that he survived on sweet-tasting grass that they gave him. Albert escaped when the large male Sasquatch took interest in his snuff and became groggy. Osman kept this story secret for more than 24 years, fearing that people would think he was crazy. We covered the Marlon Lowe abduction in detail in our Thunderbird episode, but in short, on the evening of July 25, 1977, in the town of Lawndale, Illinois, 10-year-old Marlon Lowe was playing a rousing game of hide-and-seek near Kickapoo Creek with his friends. A few minutes after 8 p.m., Marlon's mother, Ruth Lowe, stood at the door of the house and called the kids home to eat. She saw her son Marlon come running around the side of the house, screaming, and to her surprise, two gigantic jet-black birds with long white ringed necks, curled beaks, wingspans of more than 10 feet, and bodies close to 5 feet long were right above him. The claws of one of the enormous blackbirds latched onto Marlin, carrying him some 35 feet before thankfully dropping him unharmed. There were several neighborhood witnesses to this attempted kidnapping, and Marlin's mother stated that she would never forget the sight of her son's feet dangling in the air, and his little fists hitting the huge black bird as it carried him in his talons while pecking at his helpless body. Cryptids, of course, could include dozens of Native American stories of giant spiders, serpents, wendigo, and little people, as well as more modern accounts of lake monsters and dogmen. Of course, you can't get weird and not consider little green men and UFO phenomenon. Is it any wonder that the states with the most UFO sightings are the states with the largest national parks? With California, Florida, and Washington, wrapping up the top three. Mount Shasta in California has also been a focus of legends centered on a hidden city of advanced beings from the lost continent of Lumeria and is considered a top tier UFO hotspot. Now consider that two of the most popular UFO abduction stories, Travis Walton and Betty and Barney Hill, both occurred within national parks. Some conspiracy theorists even claim that many of our national parks are situated over supposed deep underground military bases and could also be a source for some of the missing person cases. One theory that is getting a lot of traction is the fairy theory. For eons, people have been warning us against going into the woods alone or in the dark. Is it only in modern times that we scoff at the idea of fairies or interdimensional beings that could be part of this equation? Other cultures around the world have their share of supernatural warnings about creatures and entities that live in nature. Why do we dismiss them today? In much of the folklore across the globe, especially folklore where people disappear in nature or strange circumstances, Fairies are the prime suspect, and the fairy theory is one that has gained a lot of traction online due to the similarity of fairy folklore and missing 411 cases. If you'll join us after the break, we'll get into some of these similarities and see if we can break down if fairies might be involved in some of these missing 411 cases.
Salutation Shades, and welcome back to your one-stop shop for all things strange and unusual, Talking with Shadows, the conversation everyone has, but no one wants to admit to. Here with your host, Vic Whaley. And Marcus D. Now come along with us as we explore the most obscure things our universe has to offer. We specialize in helping people make sense of the most bizarre phenomenon you'll ever come across. You'll get all the great topics, such as UFOs, cryptids, and psychic phenomenon, but also some stories that are so spectacular, they scare people to believe that they're true. Now take a seat, and welcome to the One Candle Society. But always remember, keep believing. Because we'll keep listening. We are back from the break, and uh, we are going to take this into a discussion on the fairy theory that is related to the missing 411 phenomenon. Now, we talked a little bit about little people in our little people episode that we did, and we know that a lot of little people lore and fairy folklore talk about them abducting people. But in a modern society, we don't really consider this. Why do you think that's the case, Jess? Well, I think, first of all, we don't consider fairies to be real. It's almost like if we believe that fairies are real, then we are not logical or something along that line, or we don't believe in science. There's something in our modern day that has cut off the belief in supernatural. On top of that, we think of fairies as things from Disney movies as little beautiful women with wings flying around helping people or maybe being a little mischievous, but that's it. Whereas a lot of people around the world in different cultures, they don't consider fairies to be these benign creatures, but to be something with the potential to cause harm. So as we said before, we started researching this theory when Vic and Marcus from Talking with Shadows asked us to be on their show and to have a roundtable discussion about this. And I realized really quickly that there's a lot of parallel between fairy theory and some of the profile points that David Politas contributes to Missing 411 Cases. So this theory primarily got its start on Reddit when a user by the name of Roger Dodger started comparing some of these profile points to a book called The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries by W.Y. Evans Wentz that was published in 1910. So let's take a look at some of these profile points and see how they relate to this fairy theory. The first being people tend to disappear in the mid or late evening. Well, this is very similar to fairy folklore, right? Where they are said to walk the earth after sunset, which is obviously mid to late evening. Taking a quote directly from the book, we read, quote, Generally the fairies are to be seen after or about sunset and walk on the ground as we do, whereas the hosts travel in the air above places inhabited by people. The hosts used to go after the fall of night, and more particularly about midnight. You'd hear them going in fine weather against the wind like a covey of birds, end quote. So the theory behind this is that the veil between our world and the land of the fairies is actually weaker during sunset due to it being a time of change. If fae are kidnapping people, this would be the prime time. Yes, and this tends to be the time that people go missing, according to the 411 theory. Another correlation or profile point would be that people tend to disappear near boulder fields. Now, this has a lot to do with fairies also, because fairies tend to, according to the book that we read at least, they prefer to live near piles of rocks. Kind of like these rocks are their homes or portals or something that has to do with rocks, has to do with fairies. Yeah, again, taking from this book, it says, quote, heap of stones in a field should not be disturbed, though needed for building, especially if they are part of an ancient tumulus. The fairies are said to live inside the pile, and to move the stones would be most unfortunate, end quote. And this quote, when I asked Patsy where the fairies live, he turned half around 
and pointing to the direction of Dung Angus, which was in full view on the sharp skyline of Arnamore, said that there, in a large tumulus on the hillside below it, they had one of their favorite abodes. But he added, the rocks are full of them, and they are small fellows. End quote. So from this, Eric, it kind of seems like there is an obvious connection between boulders and fairies and missing people. Yes. Now, this is another interesting correlation, but is not one of the profile points. And that is that people tend to disappear near berry bushes. And berry bushes have a long correlation associated with fairy folk and missing people. So it makes me wonder why I wasn't abducted by fairies, because I used to love to play in berry bushes and to crawl around and find little caves in them. Seems to me that things like bears would also like berry bushes. Yeah, or other animals, wild animals that would eat berries. Animals that could uh, potentially eat people. Or harm them in some way. The other thing about berries, I think, is that, uh, well, you can poison yourself if you're not eating the right type of berries. That is true. You'd have to know exactly what you're eating. That could leave you wandering off into the wilderness in a bit of a stupor. Or dehydrated. But there is absolutely a correlation between berries and fairies. And uh, here's an interesting story that uh, came out of the book. Quote, One day, just before sunset in midsummer, and I, a boy then, my brother and cousin, and myself were gathering bilberries, or whortleberries, up by the rocks, at the back of here, when all at once we heard music. We hurried round the rocks, and there we were, within a few hundred feet of six or eight of the gentlefolk, and they dancing. When they saw us, a little woman, dressed in all red, came running out from them towards us, and she struck my cousin across the face with what seemed to be a green rush. We ran for home as hard as we could, and when my cousin reached the house, she fell dead. Father saddled a horse and went for Father Ryan. When Father Ryan arrived, he put a stole around his neck and began praying over my cousin and reading psalms and striking her with a stole, and in that way brought her back. He said if she had not caught hold of my brother, she would have been taken forever. End quote. And Jess, you really liked this next story. Yeah, I found it very interesting. Quote, One day, Nan was berry-picking by herself, far up in the woods. She started to go astray. Nan knew she was going astray, but couldn't turn around. The fairies had me, my dear, she said. Nan noticed it was getting duckish, or twilight, and she was getting scared and began to cry. Then she remembered something told to her by her grandfather. He told her to take off her coat and turn it inside out if anything like this ever happened. When she did, the next thing she knew, she saw her house. I had no blueberries, Nan said, but at least I was home. End quote. Yeah, there are literally dozens and dozens of stories in this book that relate to people picking berries and running into fairies. What I found was interesting about that story in particular was that she was told to turn her coat inside out. And I wonder what that does to this uh, fairy spell and brought her back to her house. I don't know, but it seemed to work. Yeah. So if you get abducted by fairies, take your coat off and turn it inside out. Good advice. Now, just an interesting tidbit as related to berries as well. It has been long believed that blackberries are not fit to eat after October 31st or after Halloween. And that's because the pixies have been all over them. Hmm. Never heard that before, but that is cool. I don't know what the pixies have been doing all over them, but uh, apparently it makes it not fit to eat anymore. <laughs> Another profile point is that there tends to be an abrupt weather change after a person disappears. Weird weather phenomenon has been reported in many missing 411 cases, as well as in the fairy lore. And we have a few examples here. First example, quote, In a spot near Oak Quarter, another place was pointed out where the fairies are often seen dancing. The name of it is the Little Bog of the Dance. Other sort of fairies live in the sea, and some of them who live on Arnmore, probably in conjunction with those in the sea, go out over the water and cause storms and wind. End quote. Yeah, and here's another interesting quote. 
It says, Along the rants, the inhabitants tell stories about fae who appear during storms. These storm fairies are dressed in the colors of the rainbow. Generally, these fairies had their abodes in tumuli, in dolomes, in forests, in wastelands, where there are great rocks or standing stones. And many other kinds of spirits live in the sea and troubled sailors and fisherfolk. Like all fairy folklore of Celtic countries, those of Upper Brittany were given to stilling children. End quote. We've already talked a little bit about the profile point where people disappear in clusters. Well, according to Pilatus, in some clusters, only boys and males have been taken. This also correlates with fairy and fairy tradition. Here's a quote from the book. I was born and bred where there is a tradition that the twilight teg lived in holes in the hills. It was a common idea that many of the twilight teg forming a ring would dance and sing out in the mountainside or on the plain, and that if children should meet with them at such a time, they would lose their way and never get out of the ring. If the twilight teg fancied any particular child, they would always keep that child, taking off its clothes and putting them on one of their own children, which was then left in its place. They took only boys, never girls. End quote. David Politis also notes that a lot of these children that go missing have blonde hair and or blue eyes. The book also sheds some light on this when it says, Now consider for a moment the preference of certain of fairy races for the child who is blonde. The fairies still nice blonde babies. They usually place in their stead their own aged-looking brats. <laughs> uh, fairies don't like brats either, I guess. Uh-huh. And here's another quote. The fairies all set great store by golden hair and mortals. A golden-haired child was in far more danger of being stolen than a dark-haired one. End quote. There's something else that I found interesting in that first story. And that was that if the fairies fancied any particular child, they would always keep that child taking off its clothes and putting them on one of their own children. That also correlates with one of the profile points, which is that clothing is often missing. Yes, that is kind of interesting, because you would think that if you were lost in the woods or something happened to you, you wouldn't take off your clothes. But that seems to be what happens a lot of times with people who will go disappearing in the woods. They have missing coats or shirts or shoes. Shoes are very common for some reason. Mm -hmm. Another interesting correlation is that a lot of this clothing that is found tends to be pretty bright in color, and it also seems to be found near sources of water. That also does correlate with fairy folklore. Yes, it does. Consider this quote. In the neighborhood of Snowden... The fairies were believed to live beneath the lakes, from which they sometimes came forth, especially on misty days. And children used to be warned not to stray away from their homes in that sort of weather, lest they should be kidnapped by them. These fairies were not Christians. They were great thieves. They were fond of bright colors. They were sharp of hearing. And no word that reached the wind would escape them. End quote. Another interesting correlation is that people, when they are found, are sometimes found to be in an extreme state of confusion, which is also correlated to fairy lore. Consider this. Once they put you in their powers, they could keep you in a trance for days. Sometimes you would wander around aimlessly or sit on a rock by a stream. Even though no one can remember being in the fairies, Many can remember being one place one minute, then someplace else the next, never being the wiser of how they got there. That sounds a little bit like that story that we talked about Keith, right, Jess? Mm -hmm, it does. Where the toddler was found eight miles from where they had disappeared from. Yes, cold but mostly unharmed. How about this quote? Persons in a short trance state of two or three days duration are said to be away with the fairies enjoying a festival. The festival may be very material in its nature, or it may be purely spiritual. Sometimes, one may thus go to fairy for an hour or two, or one may remain for 7 or 14 or 21 years. The mind of a person coming out of fairyland is usually a blank as to what has been seen and done there. 
Another idea is that the person knows well enough about fairyland, but is prevented from communicating the knowledge. End quote. And this one. A woman was taken by the fairies, and when they found her a week later, she was badly bruised but still alive. They saw that the fairies had taken her into the woods and kept her alive on berries. She couldn't remember anything that had happened to her. A lot of people refer to this phenomenon as being fairy-led, Jess. That makes sense. It seems like if you're attracted to their dance, then you could become fairy-led. Here's a quote. The way a mortal might be taken by the Twi'lek Teg was to be attracted to their dance. If they thus took you away, it would be according to our time of 12 months, though to you the time would seem no more than a night. End quote. These are some really interesting correlations, Jess, aren't they? Yes, they seem to have a lot of points in common. Do you remember stories as a child of fairies being able to cast a spell on shoes? Yes, or fixing shoes. One story that comes to mind is actually called The Red Shoes, which is about a girl who gets a new pair of red shoes that she refuses to take off. And she wears them everywhere, including to church, which apparently is disrespectful in some way. And those shoes are cursed. And the curse is, is that she can't stop dancing. And the dancing becomes so long and so prolonged that she goes to an executioner and asks him to cut off her feet. That sounds like a wonderful fairy tale to tell your children at night. Well, this wonderful fairy tale was written by Hans Christian Andersen, who also did The Little Mermaid and The Ugly Duckling. As far as I remember, the original Little Mermaid did not end up well either. No, most of these original fairy tales do not have the Disney-esque type of happy ending to them. No, they don't. They're actually kind of scary. So as you can see, this one also didn't have much of a very happy ending because once her feet were cut off, they continued to dance. And they danced and they danced and they danced and continued to plague this young girl to the point where she had to be saved by an angel. So she was eventually saved, but still a very morbid story. But the, but the curse was believed to have been put on her by a fairy folk. And it had to do with shoes. And as we've talked about before, when it comes to missing 411, shoes tend to be a big deal. The shoes are usually missing, taken off, placed somewhere else, found without the body. There's just different things to do with shoes. This does not make any sense to me because if there's one thing that you do not want to lose out in the wilderness, it is your shoes. Yes, it seems like that's the one thing you would leave on if you were lost or if you were in danger or hurt. You wouldn't want to just stop and take off your shoes. Well, I can think of several reasons why you may want to stop and take off your shoes. I mean, if they're wet and you want them to dry, I think that's fine. But you don't leave your shoes behind. I can't think of any situation where I would like willingly leave my shoes behind if I was out hiking and or lost in the woods. I could not imagine transversing through the woods in my little baby feet. No, that sounds miserable. No, that definitely would be miserable. So one last uh, profile point here, and that is the clustering. And an interesting tidbit between clustering and fairy folklore has to do with Yosemite National Park, which is by far the largest clustering of all missing 411 cases. And you may think, well, how does this apply to fairy folk? Well, here's a quote from our book that kind of corresponds to that. Quote, I have been told by a friend in California who is a student of psychical sciences that there exist in certain parts of that state, notably in Yosemite Valley, that according to their native traditions, invisible races exactly comparable to the gentry, these California races are said to exist now, as the Irish and Scotch invisible races are said to exist now. And like the latter races, are described as a distinct order of beings who have never been in physical embodiments. If we follow the traditions of the Native Americans, the Yosemite invisible tribes are probably but a few of many such tribes scattered throughout the North American continent. And equally, with their Celtic relatives, they are described as a warlike race with more than human powers over physical nature, 
and as able to subject or destroy men, end quote. Now, like I said before, Jess, I never really fully considered that fairies may be behind the missing 411 phenomenon, but I gotta say that the correlations between fairy folklore is kind of spot on. Yeah, it's a little bit scary, isn't it? It's almost like people from before our time knew things that we didn't know about staying away from the woods that we tend to ignore because we think we know more, and then we disappear. Now, I would never sit here on this show and tell people that the missing 411 is caused by fairies. I think that this evidence is interesting. I think that most likely most of these cases are probably natural, that they have resulted from natural means such as falling off trail, breaking bones, getting sick. I mean, it's obvious that being in being in nature in general is very dangerous, especially if that nature is wild, like in the national forests. There are animals out there. There are a whole bunch of things that can go wrong, especially if you're by yourself. And I find that a lot of people who do go out in nature, especially by themselves, tend to have just this hubris about them where they think that they're kind of indestructible or that they know everything there is to know about these areas and nothing bad can happen to them. Or they can be like me and be just a little bit naive to what the world is like and just go out there because they love being in nature and not think about the possibilities of the danger. So folks, the underlining message here is when you're going out in nature, be humble and be prepared. And anything can happen, maybe even fairies. So do you think that the missing 411 phenomenon is natural or supernatural? Is it possibly nothing more than the efforts of a writer or a researcher to foster belief in a profitable but possible non-phenomenon? The truth is, much of what we have presented in this episode suggests that this phenomenon does fit nicely into several other paranormal possibilities. It is at least interesting to see that aspects of many of these stories remain consistent over time. Is there something to it? Perhaps. We have looked at several theories, and you'll ultimately have to decide which ones fit and which ones don't. All right, folks, that is going to do it for us. We will see you next time. All right, folks, that is the end of this episode. We want to thank you for joining us and let you know that we appreciate you listening. If you have enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing through your favorite podcast player. You can also find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you would like to share an experience, be on the show, or submit a story, you can do that through our email at prairielandparanormalpodcast at gmail.com or through our website at www.prairielandparanormalpodcast.com. So, until next time, remember, don't be normal if you can be paranormal.